Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Chainlink God podcast, where we break down the information asymmetry on all things blockchains, oracles, and smart contracts. If you've been paying attention to my content for the past couple of months, you may have noticed that I've been focusing a lot more on the underlying fundamentals and value proposition of smart contracts, while pointing out some of the unsustainable growth strategies and Ponzonomics that the crypto ecosystem has been deploying for the past couple of years. And when kind of thinking about this problem and analyzing it, it seems evidently clear to me that tokenizing real world assets is really the way that the DeFi ecosystem is going to scale and serve the 99% of society. And when kind of looking at what protocols are tokenizing these assets, like fiat currencies, government treasuries, corporate bonds, real estate, et cetera, the protocol that has really done the most thus far, or at least at scale, uh, from what I've seen, is MakerDAO. Now, MakerDAO is a DeFi protocol that issues the decentralized stablecoin DAI. And since the beginning of the year, they've been making various initiatives to onboard various real-world assets on chain as collateral. And the most recent initiative is they're working with a US-based bank to use $100 million worth of real estate loans and other tokenized, other real-world assets as collateral to back die. Now, I find this initiative incredibly interesting, and I, I, I truly think that this is the, path, the way forward for scaling DeFi. And who better to discuss this topic with than the person who is leading this initiative? So, uh, with the Crypto Oracle and I today on this podcast, we have a special guest. We have TJ Ragsdale. He is a real-world finance core unit member at MakerDAO, and he is helping lead these initiatives to bring real-world assets on chain so it can back the decentralized stablecoin DAI. So welcome, TJ. Uh, could you provide a little bit of background on who you are and what you do for MakerDAO? Sure, fellas. First of all, thank you for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm a huge fan. My name is TJ Ragsdale, uh, as CLG said. Uh, I go by Tej uh, with friends as well as folks in crypto. Um, I was uh, formerly a, a TradFi goblin. Um, I was trading commercial mortgage-backed securities for about three years out of school, uh, basically uh, real estate bonds, pools of mortgages. Um, became pretty disillusioned, as I think many of us um, in the space who came from TradFi did didn't really like corporate hierarchy or the investment dogma so i quit and uh, moved to turkey for a bit and came back and, and figured i should i should work in crypto which is my real passion and uh the most sensible place for me to kind of do that was at this intersection of crypto and real world assets and maker was a leader in the space so i've been uh, contributing to real world assets at MakerDAO for about a year now and that's where we find ourselves today very cool well, what, what do you uh, what do you focus on in MakerDAO? What do you kind of been, I know you're in like the real world asset domain, but what do you do specifically there? Sure. So when we think about onboarding um, assets from the real world, obviously very different than, um, you know, issuing a loan against BTC or, or ETH. Um, these assets are, are very complicated, right? They, they live in a world of, of legal contracts and courts and commercial structures and yada, yada, yada. And so what I do is, you know, when the community expresses interest in, exploring onboarding an asset, um, I really am the commercial risk analyst. So I look at that deal, I try to understand what the risks are to the protocol, what the opportunities are to the protocol. 
um, and explore a potential structure that may protect maker token holders against downside. So I really just take kind of my experience from, from my old world um, and try to put together um, an assessment of risk such that token holders can do what they do best, which is onboard good collateral and avoid bad collateral. So TJ, I had a question, um, just a kind of a foundational question. So when you talk about real world assets, like wh- what do you, what types of real world assets do you like, are, are there like, like, could you maybe give like a general class of like what the different types you could see, like that you could see maybe making their way into DeFi? Yeah, sure. So um, I think a lot of uh, the real world asset space is, is, is iterative and I don't think we've even seen the tip of the iceberg in terms of the potential combinations, but you know, I think there's a wide range of these things that exist today that I think folks are familiar with. Maybe most won't recognize them as RWAs, but I think they kind of are. Um, you know, you've got things like USDC. That's really a real-world asset. That's cash and you know some short-term bonds that sit in an account, and then Circle issues a liability. Um, of those assets on chain, we call that USDC. But then Paxos, there's gold on chain. You see equities on chain through through synthetics um, and FTX. Um, you know, Maker is is trying to bring bonds on chain through um, Centrifuge. And then there's all kinds of like more interesting esoteric stuff that people are trying to bring into the mix too, um, like collector cars and wine and agricultural. Um, crop inventory. So we kind of see a, a wide range of stuff um, and, and, and combinations that folks are trying to bring into the world of smart contracts. Um, but I think ultimately, you know, there's a whole level of infrastructure, a layer of infrastructure missing such that we can really see um, RWAs flourishing fully on chain. Um, and that stuff is is, is going to come as you know folks like Maker and, and Centrifuge and and Chainlink um, and these sort of on chain credit scores uh, really mature. So I think we're at the very beginning, uh, but you do see a, a pretty diverse range of of RWAs already living um, on ledgers. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point here is that we're already kind of seeing this in many ways with, with stable coins, which are just tokenized dollars, and dollars are just a, an asset minted by the government, but. People typically don't think of stable coins as a real world asset, but that's really exactly what it is. Uh, I, I think that kind of stepping back a little bit, uh, you know, w- w- what what is the value proposition of tokenizing a real world asset and bringing it on chain? And well, like, what's the value proposition of having a real world asset on a blockchain network versus an asset just tracked somewhere in a centralized database? Like, why would somebody want to tokenize an asset, and why are they valuable? Yeah, sure. So, you know, again, I, I think. At the end of the road, um, if we really build out this bridge between RWAs and crypto in 10 years, this answer will be so obvious in hindsight. I think it's a little bit more difficult to see today, but I would break down the advantages today to an asset manager bringing their asset on chain, tokenizing it into kind of three buckets. Uh, the one is, is is liquidity, right? So. Um, there's the potential to access a larger pool of investors. So the, the buy side is, is sort of expanding for these assets. You know, in a sense, if you've tokenized a, um, a, a loan and you brought, it on, you brought it on Ethereum, in theory, anyone with Wi-Fi and an Ethereum wallet could partake in the liquidity pool of that asset. So a potentially bigger buy side, more liquidity. I think the other thing is, if you think about the way traditional financial markets are set up, 
you know, we have this construct called securitization, which was really a breakthrough moment for capital formation in, in, in the history of, of capital markets. You know, you take loans, you package them together, you slice them up, and then you sell them off to investors as per their risk appetites. But the problem with that system is it, it requires a very sort of pretty bow around the assets. It only accepts certain assets. They have to be very standard. It's very picky. It's expensive. It has big administrative overhead. So I think bringing assets on chain, you know, you can potentially bring a wider swath of assets, uh, more esoteric assets, big ones, small ones, stuff from emerging markets, different jurisdictions. Um, and it can it can live on chain, right? Um, and I think that's probably appealing for asset managers. Um, and second, I think, is uh, this idea of information. So, you know, you take an asset, um, that asset has a certain essence to it, right? It has a value, it has maybe a risk profile that changes over time. As the environment changes, it has a history of performance, it has all of these qualities. Um, and I think, you know, when stuff lives in proprietary ledgers, silos in, in the outside world, um, it can be very difficult to have like a sense of continuity. Um, that information is opaque, where if you take that essence of that asset and you have a single source of truth on chain, it's immutable, it's open, anyone can refer to it. Um, I think that unlocks a lot, right? It reduces this asymmetry of information. It reduces administrative overhead. Um, I think it gets at this idea of a transformation of capital markets through transparency. And I think the final one is is the, the potential combinations, right? The the stuff we can um, we can we can launch. It's really this idea of composability, right? You have these ledgers. On these ledgers, there's really this ecosystem of apps, of assets, of users. All of this capital and value being formed. Um, and if you bring assets into that, right? There's a lot of really cool combinations for capital markets that simply don't exist when these assets are out in the real world stranded in some jurisdiction with a few relationships. It just allows for a more expansive combination. So I would say those three, liquidity, single source of truth, and this idea of, of combinations. I have a quick question uh, on that. Do you, do you think that there is, you also introduced the new risk by having bigger buy side, uh, like, you know, you kind of have this, almost this like global and limited pool of assets, like you don't really know well, I mean, you, you could know or you don't know, like you could have buyers from all over the place and you don't really know maybe that much about them. I mean, I guess it depends on how DID and that kind of stuff develops. But do you see that as a potential risk and also maybe the, the this idea of like having too much composability where it introduces like new risks, you know, that we don't really you know, fully understand yet? Definitely, definitely. I mean, I think there's, there's two points to that question. One is... Um, are you exposing financial systems? I mean, if you don't know who your, your buy side is, might bad actors be investing in these assets when you don't want them to? And I think that is an absolute reality, which is also why I think this discussion of RWAs on chain really does go hand in hand with regulation. I think at least for Maker, you know, the time where, you know, we're, you know, secretly, you know, doing things in a corner and, you know, trying to be decentralized such that we can avoid regulation. That's of the past. You know, we're ready to um, deal with these issues seriously. RWAs deal with real world issues, and I think a reality is you must do them compliantly and make sure you're 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 dotting your eyes and crossing your t's. So I think that sort of sanction and AML point 
is a good one and it's something that that needs to be addressed. And the other point is also super interesting. This idea that composability introduces sort of um, unexpected emergent stuff to the mix. Um, if you think about what happened in, in 2008, right? There was all this stacking. I mean, it was really composability. And there were so many stacks that people only saw the top stack and didn't recognize the implications, uh, the long string of um, sort of liabilities and contingencies. And I think that that is a concern here, right? The more combinations you have, you have this potential cascading effect. But this, I think, is why it's so important. If we're going to compose real-world assets, we need to make sure upfront that we are building a level of transparency and auditability and accountability that does allow, allow for those combinations and the positives of them without sort of incurring this, you know, this Lego effect, this potential for, for Cascade. Yeah, I think the transparency is really key there. And also like you have basically the ability for a, any number of people to be looking at the same data and then being able to come to probably a deeper conclusion on what the systemic risk is, as opposed to when everything is very siloed, like, you don't have hardly any people that can actually like, you know, figure it out themselves, but also then talk with other people about it. Whereas this kind of blockchain can allow you, a lot of people to crunch on the same problem with the same data. Exactly. Exactly. I think that the auditability is key. A whole nother issue is, you know, just because it is auditable, will will people actually look at it? But at least you can say to the extent you want to investigate a system, how it's built, the collateral, you can go look at something, which I think is an improvement. I think um, you made a point about regulation. I think that's definitely almost like a like the elephant in the room with real world assets. Um, on one side, I could really see privacy preserving KYC being the future approach to this, but I think there's always going to be a subset of people who want to be you could put a decentralization maximalist or just full people who want to go full trustless. And so crypto only collateral, do you see there being a split in the DeFi ecosystem where there's a route of dApps going towards regulated and real world assets, and then a subset of ads going down kind of the fully permissionless, fully decentralized crypto only can't be shut down. Do you see these two worlds splitting? Do you think they can ever be reconciled? What, what's your kind of your take here? So, so I think there, there is definitely a split and I, I think for the for the most part, the split will fall along um, lines of maturity. And what I mean by that is, I think one of the beautiful things about this space, about building on a censorship resistant ledger, is the ability to experiment with sort of new monetary systems, right? New primitives that you know it's very difficult. It's it's a lot of friction to spin up these ideas in the real world. You build it on chain. You can see how users respond to it. You can see how it responds to shocks. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And I think it's really important um, in order to preserve that creativity and that entrepreneurialism um, to have this unregulated sort of a laboratory. But ultimately, and I think kind of what you're getting at is, well, is a protocol's upside its ability to uh, impact the world to have a large total addressable market? Um, is it sort of capped if you're building in this kind of decentralized? Um, lawless space. And I think in it, to an extent it is, right? Ultimately, the purpose of these systems is to make a dent in the way the incumbent financial systems work. And so I do think at a level of maturity, if a protocol hits product market fit, it will be more natural for that 
for that protocol, especially now that it has the resources to do so, to explore compliance and to explore how to integrate with the real world in a way that you know protects consumers and regulators are okay with. So I do think it does cleave, but I think it's less a fork in terms of you know one side is doing illegal stuff, you know under the radar and the other side is is doing legitimate stuff and more so I think you want the laboratory to be on the permissionless sort of low constraint open side and I think you want the big protocols that have found product market fit with millions of users to probably explore the compliance side. Just a, a quick point, a thought on that. Like, I think for me, you know, the question is like, I do agree with you. Like, if you want to hit like true global scale, like you kind of have to play by these preset, you know, these the rules that currently govern financial systems. I guess what I would love to see though is how can you kind of work within those, but also push that foundation a little bit because you know i think what a lot of people worry is that well it will just be captured by the same system that has already that that you know we're trying to create a better system you know not get captured by the existing system so like i'm very curious like what is the right amount of push versus you know working within the current system you know that's always a tricky that's a tricky dynamic yeah i mean i, I think if you know, if a if a protocol stops innovating when they get to size and they try to fit in, you know, the legal box of um, of the last era, I don't think that makes much sense. And ultimately, you know, I believe that you know tech is always a front runner of culture and law. And so, if we're not pushing for you know new laws that are more amenable to the realities on the ground of crypto innovation then i think we're 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 sort of losing out here i think another piece is um you know there, there's a kind of a race here in in crypto to get to scale because when you think about the game theory with with regulators you know you want to be of systemic importance such that you know if regulators try to jam you into a box and constrain your ability to continue to deliver a product for your users um if by doing that, the regulators are kind of violating their mandate um, and in fact, delivering more harm to the consumers that, that they're there to protect, I think that's sort of an interesting snafu, right? And this is also with, with real world assets. I think when you think about a, a regulator coming in here and, and knocking around, you know, if you're doing all this stuff that's insular and, and sort of circular in DeFi, you know, a lot of what you guys talked about on the last pod, then a regulator is going to look at that protocol much more differently than they are one that is in good faith trying to lay track to the real world, right? This HVB deal, you know, we're, we're trying to finance the engine of the US economy, small and medium sized businesses. So I think as a regulator coming in there, um, you know, I would hope they would recognize that as being something that's, that's value add um, and that will push the law forward as opposed to really trying to jam us all up and, and put us in, you know, last decade's box. I think it'd be an interesting point is like just the, the move of crypto DApps basically to become so systemically important that ripping them out of the system would do more harm to consumers rather than if you look at the casino kind of speculative Ponzanomic games and you rip that out of people's hands, it's not actually gonna make that big of a difference in society. Most people won't really notice, but when you become so systemically important, then you can't realistically do that. So it's almost in a way becoming too big to fail kind of in a different sense. Um, I'm, I'm kind of curious, did you see real world assets 
we kind of touched on this, but you see real world assets as being more sustainable and non-cyclical than traditional crypto collateral. I know MakerDAO's focus has traditionally been, you know, borrowing against Ether and Bitcoin, and now it's moving more into real world assets. Is real world assets necessary to scale DeFi and prevent this kind of recursive capital rotation loops that a lot of DApps have been kind of stuck in for a while? Yeah, so I, I don't, I, I mean, I think the the answer is yes right now. But, you know, RWAs are, um, they are less violently cyclical for sure. But I think that's more a function of just how young crypto is. You know, price discovery is is, is pretty is pretty violent still. And I think as things mature, you'll ultimately just see capital market like activity um, and the volatility associated um, exist in crypto as well. I think as the pools of capital get bigger. But what I think it's kind of important and, and gets to your point about how do we get out of this sort of snafu of reflexive sort of yield farming and, and, and simple circular games. RWAs are important because their yield, at least for now, is more predictable and uncorrelated with crypto yields. And I think that's what's important in kind of a market like this where, look, at least for Maker, you know, our product is lending against crypto assets. When those crypto assets prices are low, there's less demand for that leverage, right? And when that demand dries up, so does our revenue. So in order to make the protocol or any protocol more resilient to crypto market swings, you know, you look to the real world where rates are actually rising, right? And you say, how can we, um, how can we marshal some of that yield, that more fixed, predictable yield, uh, collateralize against you know non-circular assets, and how do we bring it into this system? I think your second point, you know, does crypto scale without incorporating these assets? I, I think absolutely not. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, the crypto market cap is you know roughly a trillion. Maybe it's a little bit lower today. Uh, you know, real estate, fixed income and equities are $650 trillion, right? So most of the value in the world, you know, does not live on our distributed ledgers. It lives elsewhere. Um, and so I think, you know, for crypto to fulfill the potential we all hope it has, you know, for it to be sort of a, you know, internet was for information, what crypto is for value, you know, type proposition, like th those tracks must be laid. Those assets ultimately for us to be successful here, they've got to live on crypto rails. You know, we've got to bring crypto's fundamental strengths, whether it's transparency, trust minimization, determinism to that world. And if we don't, I think we're, we're, we're definitely undershooting what, what could be built on this tech. Yeah, I think you pretty much echo my sentiment <laughs> here that it's real world assets are really the way forward and actually introducing total adjustable markets that are, multiple orders of magnitude bigger than anything we've ever built previously. Um, I think the the value proposition, I think, is increasingly clear. But of course, it's not going to be a clear riding road. There's going to be many bumps along the way. We, we kind of talked a bunch about the regulatory roadblocks that exist, or at least there has to be. You have to, We have to work some way in the regulators or maybe beat them to the punch a bit. But what do you see as the other primary challenges and roadblocks to tokenizing real-world assets? Uh, I'm sure there's there's numerous that you've run into in your experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, we're we're just at the very beginning of, of dealing with these challenges. Um, but yeah, so I mean, regulation is, I, I think, one piece. I, I'm actually more, um, 
I'm kind of more hopeful and optimistic about that than most. Um, I, I think regulators will uh, be surprisingly thrilled um, with what's happening on the real world asset front and figuring out that these systems are in fact trying to incorporate existing financial systems as opposed to you know tear them down and rebuild. But um, th- there is this interesting dynamic with tokenization of real world assets right now, which is you know, what, what is the token? What does it entitle a holder to? Is a token just a representation of information? Is, you know, is a token telling me the value of this asset, its performance, where it is, yada, yada? Or is a token in my wallet ownership of the underlying asset? And so I think this idea of legal acknowledgement of ownership is a key thing. There, there are certain jurisdictions like Singapore and particularly Switzerland um, that have you know seen this uh, this really what is an opportunity to um, you know build a legal backing to the ownership of a token, which is to say, owner of a token owns underlying asset, um, and they should accrue you know significant business activity through that. But until more jurisdictions you know remove the uncertainty around what a token entitles its owner to. Um, you know, we're nowhere near the the full potential of the system. I think another key weakness here is, um, is is kind of packaging and distribution. So it's really the infrastructure for ingesting these assets, combining these assets, and then distributing the yield out to various DeFi participants. Um, I, I think this is really where kind of the you know the the Oracle solutions, um, the liquidity pools, the kind of you know, smart contract waterfalls, that's where all this stuff comes in. There's just not enough um, seasoned tracks on chain for the, you know, a torrent of assets to, of real world assets to, to come into the mix. Um, and I think the other two, which, which are kind of, um, we're, we're kind of embedded in the first two points are demand. You've got this weird snafu where, you know, DGENs want high yields and RWAs are giving you, you know, a fixed five or 6%. It's just not that interesting. And then on the asset manager side, on the supply side, you know, th- these guys have been doing their business the same way for 25 years and they know it well. And, you know, why are they going to take, you know, some technical risk bringing their asset onto some tokenization platform? So, I think there's a snafu. And, and finally, really, is the oracles. I, I think we undershoot the potential of RWAs on chain until we really wholesale um, revise kind of the valuation um, and oracle mechanisms here. Um, you know, it's a trope, but um, these systems are only as trust minimized as the most trusted link. Um, and until we revise those primary oracles, whether, you know, it's an, a 60 year old man appraising, Real estate or or anything else that's trusted, um, I think I think we still have room to go. So so I would say legal, um, this idea of distribution, um, the demand snafu, and and oracles would be kind of the four constraints that I see at least in the near future. Wanted to jump in a quick point. Uh, well, two points. One, you know, I thought you brought up something really interesting. You kind of touched on it again, although in more of a negative light. But you know, this idea of having this kind of 5% yield. And, you know, I, I know I agree with you that most people in crypto, they view it, well, most people, most people, most retail people, they view it as the lottery ticket, basically. But I think, you know, if you're getting 5%, you're beating a lot of the market. But but this, this idea of having a kind of, I see it kind of like a hedge 
So when crypto is not doing well, you have this alternative that people can go back into as opposed to just like basically full risk on mode. You can actually have this like hedge. This has kind of been what stable coins are, but it, we're kind of been limited to stable coins, whereas real world assets creates this like massive pool of kind of more risk, you know, less risk adverse assets. Um, and the other thing I was curious about, like, do you run into any like privacy uh, challenges with bringing real world assets on chains, like deals, like legal stuff about the the deals or about people involved, you know, needing privacy, like, and I know like, you know, transparency is such an important thing with real that real world assets. So do you see like any privacy challenges? Yeah, I mean, hundred percent. I mean, to your first point, I think it's a good one, right? When when you think about you know building an application, I mean, in in Maker's case, um, you know, we're we're we have a balance sheet, um, and we want to continue to drive uh, revenue to the protocol, and so to have this sort of flexible ability as a sovereign issuer to move away from crypto loans when rates are low and volume is low and take advantage of real world rates, especially when they're going up, is really nice kind of uh, anti-fragile kind of characteristic. And if you think about it, right, crypto loans are, you know, even forget the, you know, the short term cycles, the fact that prices are low, but it's a commoditized product. It's not a difficult product to do. You lock up some crypto collateral in a vault and you lend against it. It's basically riskless. And as we see with all riskless activity, whether it's an exchange or crypto lending, it'll trend towards zero. And so more long term, I think we got to think about, you know, what does sustainable revenue look like over the long term? And I think for Maker, what we've very quickly realized is you need to integrate real world assets because crypto lending is, is going to commoditize. Um, but um, but more so to the other point, I mean, it's a it's a great one. I mean, privacy in real world asset lending is absolutely critical. Um, especially with consumer credit, but just in general, like you're dealing with sensitive information about people, their assets, their you know history of performance, their history of bankruptcy, like all this stuff feeds into the credit process. Um, and you know, like it, it's cute, you know, or people look at crypto and they're like, it's cute that you're you're transparent and you're open and everyone can audit, but I don't want my information open on chain. And so I think what it kind of gets to is how do we drive towards a standard? You know, what I, what I like to call the maker standard for real world assets on chain um, and transparency without revealing the actual information of borrowers. Um, and we'll talk about HVB a little bit later, but there are sort of interesting ways to confirm information is true and to put that on chain, whether it's IPFS or on the maker forum, without unnecessarily revealing specific information, dispositional information about borrowers. You know, the obvious use case here is, and it will be built, um, my my brother who who works at a, at a at a fund has actually put forth a, a a kind of a beta, but this is a perfect example of where you know a zk solution that brings performance data on chain without revealing things you know solves a problem in the market. It's almost like this this gap in the market that if solved, you know a, a flood of RWAs come on. But yeah, I mean this is something we're ultra sensitive to. If you um, if you go too far and you sort of invade the privacy of an asset manager or of of, 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 a, of a user of a borrower, um, you know that really tarnishes the space. And as the leader there, 
this is something that we're, we're, we're absolutely ensuring to be overly conservative on. Yeah, I think it'd be a good point about zero knowledge proofs. I think that that's definitively the way forward of being able to prove data about the credit worthiness of a borrower without actually revealing who they are, what their credit score is, what assets they own or anything else about them. I think that's probably the way forward. Um, do, you, do you see, it's kind of like almost getting into the topic of like the Oracle problem. Do you see there being any other challenges? How, how do you think that Oracle's should be approached for real world assets and what's kind of the scope? Um, because Oracle's for, you know, traditional vaults is pretty much just like, what's the price of Bitcoin? You deliver that price, it's ingested, and then it determines if the position is liquidated. But with real world assets and its its structure, it can get a little bit more complicated and you need a little bit more, maybe some more trust in specific uh, auditors or evaluators. Well, what's kind of the problem space here and how's it different than traditional price feeds? Yeah, so I think the, the question of how to upgrade um, the Oracle solutions for real world assets is, is a good one. Um, and, and I do think unless we really look at how to make that process more robust and more accountable, um, we've only solved so much. What I think is a little bit tricky is when you think about a real world asset and what an Oracle would be used for, you know, it's really about valuation, right? What is this thing at a certain period of time? And in general, you know, think about something like, like real estate, you know, I, I sort of made fun of um, the, you know, the trope of the real estate appraiser, you know, it's a typically an older man with, you know, a, a, um, a, a, a clipboard and a little algorithm for how to value a, you know, a row home in Manhattan, you know, but ultimately the thing about these assets is they are complicated and they do require local knowledge to understand what the price of them are. And so when you say, well, you know, let's, let's apply a decentralized Oracle solution to valuating real estate. It's like, well, what are we really solving there? Because you have people with a deep trove, an entire career of knowledge, trying to understand what this asset's worth. You know, who's to say a decentralized solution that was spun up yesterday is any better? But I do think the key here is, you know, rolling out an Oracle solution for real-world assets um, that is more accountable and it is more robust. And so, this idea of cryptographic truth not being, you know, it's a better, you know, it's it's objective, but it tells you who said what about which asset and when, and they sign that on chain, right? And so you can have a history of sort of valuations for a specific asset that changed as per certain conditions. And anyone who's investing on chain can go and look at, you know, what is happening there. And so I think over time, you know, what's so interesting about these on-chain Oracle solutions is, you know, you can use something like on-chain signatures um, and slashing of bad inputs to generate a reputation, a long reputation on chain of sort of quality of submission. And I think at that stage, you have sort of this network, this web of reputable oracles on chain, each of whom is checking up everyone else's work that really enhances the process. But it is going to take a long time because right here at T equals zero, these domain experts who have spent their careers understanding what's the value of a bond, what's the value of real estate, what's the value of a thousand photovoltaic panels in Boise, Idaho? You know they're going to have knowledge that um, you know a decentralized Oracle network won't today, but I do think one day, you know, based on these fundamental strengths of decentralized Oracle systems, you know, we will see a wholesale revamp, but it'll just take time. I'm so I'm so glad you said that because this is. This is something I've thought a lot about, you know, this idea of, you know, people want 
like the 100% truth on this or that. But a lot of times, like, you can't, there is not like one single answer. Like, like when you say, what's the value of real estate? Well, there's not like a answer. It's not a deterministic uh, input. You know, it's not a deterministic thing. Um, but this idea of tracking someone's history over time and then actually really looking at how reliable this person has been over a long period of time and then potentially slashing them, you know, not only do you, well, you could slash him like, you know, in the future per se on um, things that they've maybe got way wrong outside of some threshold or, um, you know, so this idea of reputation stemming from how you input over time, I think is fascinating. I've also like on a side point, like how could you do this to maybe media and, and journalists and scientists yeah, yeah. and, and like this could really like this goes beyond RWAs, but you could do this far wider than just that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, hundred percent. I I think, um, and I, I know you guys kind of kind of love this stuff, but I think you know on chain reputation, you know, in 15, 20 years will be one of the most powerful forces that just governs our world, right? Because you'll have you'll have these parties who have such a deep incontrovertible history of, you know, performance of good faith contributions of coordination, collaboration, quality, whatever. And they'll be able to unlock just so many more opportunities than those bad faith actors. And so, yeah, I think, I think CEO, you're right. Like whether you apply it to risk assets or literally any domain, you know, this track record of immutable reputation, I think is going to be so important going forward. And to be honest, I think it solves a lot of, you know, societal ills. I mean, you know, you kind of avoid this prisoner's dilemma if you're like, look, you need to generate a good long-term reputation or your earnings power is notably reduced by whatever, 100x. I mean, that force, that's powerful and that's going to affect the way people think about economics. And when you when you, when you you put people kind of their opinions all on like a platform where everyone can view, they become very easy to compare. Like right now, a lot of people make statements, but they're in their own little iso their, their own little isolation and they're community doesn't see it against other communities and it like if you like kind of aggregate these and you track them over time you could actually do a very good analysis you know over time of, of someone's track record um so i because I, I see a lot of times people make statements but they don't actually have to defend those statements right or they or, or they delete them and, and they delete the track record of them um so anyway it's kind of a side tangent but a very interesting uh, very i agree with you a very very interesting concept this thing of on-chain reputation and I think it's an interesting topic since it kind of it, it's just like the reputation problem. I think that like you can bootstrap your reputation over time, and then at a certain point you could have incumbents. And if you're a new entity who wants to build your reputation, you know you you could potentially bootstrap your reputation by putting the capital up as collateral, and then over time as as you become a more trusted and proven entity, you could basically reduce the capital requirements of your statements almost. So uh, I, I think it's a it's an interesting dynamic. It's a hard problem. I think kind of. When it, when it comes to like the quote-unquote oracle problem, I think that it's almost like what something's worth and where something is. I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, when, when an asset is tokenized on chain, then it exists on chain and the token is the asset. But when you have a token representing an off-chain asset, there needs to be some kind of link proving that that asset actually exists. So I'm just kind of curious your thoughts on the role of proof reserve and if you think that's uh, something we'll see at scale, or if that's just kind of temporary until all tokens are the actual, the actual asset. 
And if I could add to it, it's not just that it exists, but also some, a lot of times like the condition that it exists in as well. Yeah. So I think you guys are, I mean, basically the question is at the current stage of RWAs, like what does, what do our oracles look like? I mean, how does, how do off-chain activities get reflected on chain? And so I think, you know, having gone through um, this HVB transaction, which we'll talk about for the last three months, you know, we've had to build kind of a, a custom Oracle, if you will, uh, that sort of delivers to die holders and MKR holders who are really taking this risk, um, a sort of peace of mind around a um, sort of the collateralization of the vault and b the performance of the underlying assets. And so what we did is we kind of built into in a, in, a, an auditor into the system, um, a, a group that you know we spent two or three months finding a sort of an adaptive off-chain group that basically what they're doing in this structure is they're saying, um, are these assets that um, the bank is submitting to Maker for funding eligible as per the vote that MKR token holders had? And is the over collateralization ratio reflected by sort of the cash held off chain and the assets value calculated off chain sufficient such that you know the vault is compliant as per maker's requirements and so it's not just you know an off chain originator is you know marking their own assets they're you know managing their own cash and then they're selling stuff into MKR right we basically have a custom oracle solution built off-chain to kind of deal with this, you know, proof of reserves, this asset type eligibility issue. And that entity then it submits this information on-chain and in sort of a comprehensive report that details to MKR holders what's happening with the collateral, how it's performing, how much interest has come in. And they're really they're signing that on-chain. So you know it it, it is sort of in its absolute nascency. Um, but what we're hoping is that each and every deal, right? It looks more like the kind of trust minimization and transparency that we're accustomed to on chain, but you can't just go with zero to hundred, right? I mean, these systems take time to build. And as we're building towards kind of the maker standard, what we do on each and every deal is we ask ourselves the question, what upgrades can we make to this structure based on our understanding of sort of crypto economic strengths to make it look more like the world we're used to. And then we build that in. And I think over time, the Oracle solution being no exception, all of the middleware of this bridge between RWAs and crypto, uh, it's just going to become better and better and better and, and less trusted, more robust, more transparent, but it does take time. I think proof of reserves is a super important use case, um, especially because... Um, you know, when you think about an asset manager coming to crypto, like sure, they might be comfortable with Ethereum or the developers they're working with are comfortable pushing data on Ethereum. But I think what's important about like a proof of reserves sort of solution, you, you know, like on Chainlink is it's kind of Chainlink is kind of this abstraction layer as the way I see it. You know, it's sort of a, an anchor. It kind of hooks into different L1s. So if you're an asset manager and you have information about, you know, an amount of cash that's in a vault, you know, maintaining a certain over collateralization ratio, and you want to ship that information on chain into various consensus environments. I think something like proof of reserve is probably your, your, your simplest out of the box solution. 
Yeah, I think that people, there's kind of a distinction of like the Oracle problem can be broken down into like the data delivery problem. How do you get data on chain? And the data quality problem of what is the data act itself actually saying? So I, I would agree with perspective chain link is basically like an abstraction layer of facilitating the ability to get this data on chain. So I, the Oracle space is, it's, it's definitely an interesting one for real world assets. I think it's gonna kind of shift what it means to be an Oracle. It's not just a price feed, but it's actually much more about all of the metadata that surrounds the state of an asset and the state of uh, its eligibility to be used within a protocol. I think kind of so stepping beyond this conversation, I think um, it's worth stepping into, you mentioned a couple of times with the HVB deal. Uh, could, you, could you provide a little bit of context of like what MakerDAO is doing here? Um, and what, what exactly is the HVB deal? Um, I, I think it's a very, very exciting initiative, but I feel you can likely explain it better, <laughs> better than I can here. Sure, happy, happy to, gents. Um, yeah, so this is a $100 million real-world asset deal um, that was just uh, approved for funding at MakerDAO. Um, the party um, on the other side of the deal is Huntington Valley Bank. This is a 151-year-old, fully regulated Pennsylvania bank. Um, this deal is um, is interesting. It's, it's a participation facility. Um, so what that means is, Rather than MakerDAO, you know, lending um, to HVB or against their assets, what happens is HVB, you know, a bank going about its normal course of business will um, issue, you know, a commercial real estate loan, a business loan, whatever else they do in their course of business, um, and then they'll sell off a portion of that loan to Maker. Um, and so Maker will, will fund that loan with DAI, and then it will have a real-world asset on its balance sheet. But I think it's important to recognize this difference between um, you know, Maker really being a buyer of participations and Maker lending to HVP. Um, uh, sort of second point about this deal, um, it's really interesting for, for Maker because um, it, it's sort of turnkey, this facility. And what I mean by that is, I think it's really important to recognize what Maker's good at or what crypto's good at and what it's really bad at. Um, you've got this party, HVB, and they are really good at what they do, which is go out into the real world. They're a community bank. They understand you know, their jurisdiction, their asset types. They know their business. They've been doing it for 150 years. Uh, and for Maker to understand what it is, which is a flexible, scalable source of capital, um, and to really let HVB go out and do their thing. And so for Maker, this is a out-of-the-box diversified yield solution. HVB originates assets. They service those assets. They work out those assets if that's needed. And Maker sits there and we collect the yield off these participations. So I think that's a kind of an elegant structure whereby two entities, each of which has its strengths and weaknesses, combine into one kind of symbiotic whole um, that really works for both parties. How, how, how long does this, I mean, you probably, I probably don't even know, but how long is this like loan structure? Like how, like how, what's the maturity of like how long it takes to pay back and the interest, like how does that work? Sure. So um, the longest, we set up the facility such that um, HVB um, at maximum can originate five-year loans. Um, and so what that basically allows for is, you know, as long as HVB is paying monthly interest, um, or even if they're not, 
uh, MKR holders have the ability to wind down the facility in, in sort of due course. But it is important, I think, here to understand um, that that five-year cap was very much deliberate. Um, if you think about the other side of maker's balance sheet, um, it's really these die deposits, right? It's kind of like a banking deposit. As long as your deposits are there and they're sticky and users don't want them back, you can go ahead and lend them out. But if a user redeems their deposit, you really have to honor that. And I think that's kind of critical, uh, you know, especially in the wake of, you know, all these uh, kind of CFI nightmares, Celsius, Nexo, whatever, like you must respect a user's um, right to withdraw. And so that's kind of our liability side, right? And so, you know, if we're onboarding assets that are, you know, 20 years um, and, you know, die deposit holders want to redeem their die and we can't honor that because we can't get rid of these 20 year assets, then that's a problem. So it's really important to think about RWAs not only in terms of the credit risk to the protocol, the odds they pay you back, but also kind of the liquidity risk and ensuring that the nature of those assets kind of matches the nature of, of your liabilities. So what I read on the proposal is like the initial size that you're focusing is about $100 million for this deal, ideally scale up to a billion dollars over time, providing 3% yield or so on that capital. Um, though it's clear that traditional institutions can't really touch crypto yet, and that includes even crypto native stable coins like DAI. So what is the conversion process like for converting DAI and USD you know, between each other? How, how, how does that process work exactly? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we 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 would love for one day this to be direct die for uh, for assets, but we're not there. Um, so we're using kind of a very simple structure here. Um, we've got a trading agent, um, a reputable trading agent that sits in the middle, um, and as die leaves the protocol, um, they swap that die into dollars, always in single day settlement. Um, right? We recognized this trading agent as being a potential weakness to the structure, i.e., you know, if DAI is sitting on their books for too long and for whatever reason, you know, that counterparty disappears, you know, that's not a risk we want to, you know, subjugate um, the maker protocol or MKR holders to. And so we're shipping DAI out in four shipments to ensure that that DAI can be swapped to dollars, single day settlement. It only sits on the books for a little bit. That trading agent then ships those dollars uh, to a trustee. Uh, which is basically, you know, the trust is makers, you know, real world arm for the purposes of the structure. Um, and then, you know, dollars are, are swapped for the underlying loans. So we're just using a, a very simple trading agent who swaps die to dollars on the way out. And then when principal and interest come back in on the underlying loans that we own, uh, that same party will, will do the reverse swap to die um, and then pay die down to the surplus buffer at, at maker. Could you dive a little bit more into like what specific assets are actually uh, backing this newly minted die? It seems like it's mostly the real estate in a specific area of the U.S. market. Do you see this as being a particular risk if Maker becomes too overexposed to this particular area? What's your kind of your thinking here? Yeah, so I think this is actually pretty interesting. So um, as I mentioned, this is kind of a diversified solution. Right. So we have not been overly punitive in terms of what HVB is allowed to originate. We've agreed with the bank um, on a certain um, on certain constraints, on certain characteristics, um, and that includes asset type. So um, under the sort of um, under the docks of this particular facility, HVB can originate uh, commercial real estate loans, construction loans, 
um, government guaranteed or not uh, business loans, um, as well as a few other types that um, we've put uh, pretty low caps on, such as residential real estate um, and, and consumer loans. Um, but the idea here really is to give HVB the flexibility to execute its business um, in the best possible way, right? Um, HVB is sort of you know taking a risk in that they are integrating with crypto. They're the first bank to ever do this. And so you know we are trying to deliver them a product that enhances as opposed to constrains their business. Um, it's very obvious what this does for maker. It gives us an out of the box yield solution. And I think it's important to recognize to your point about um, maybe some exposure to idiosyncratic risk, whether it's commercial real estate, whether it's the certain geography of the US, um, HVB um, must retain at least as much of every loan that make them that maker does. And so what that basically means is, you know, we've taken a look at this and we've said, how do we structure this thing such that maker is protected? And I think the way you do so is you ensure that the originator of the loan also holds the risk of that loan on their balance sheet. So when you think about HVB's incentives here, my Wi-Fi went out, so I'm on hotspot. No worries. You were just, you were like halfway through answering that question. Um, yeah. So I think, I think it was just saying, um, you know, you guys had kind of mentioned the potential risks um, by being overly exposed to a single asset class or a single geographic location. Um, but, you know, we recognize that um, and we tried to build a structure that would ensure that HVB be as sort of prudent and cautious with their origination as we'd like them to be. And basically the way you do that is you ensure that HVB as the originator is not just originating to distribute, which was sort of um, the pathology that we saw in 2008, but they're originating a loan, they're selling us some of that loan and they're retaining a large piece of that exposure. It really ensures that they are acting in, in maker's best interest uh, and that everyone is aligned. So you mentioned before that HVB initiates a loan, a commercial loan, they own 50%, they sell 50% to MakerDAO. And then is the loan for DAI just taken out against the 50% that Maker owns? So if there's $100 million of assets, 50 million belongs to Maker, then can your, your MakerDAO is basically buying, exchanging $50 million of DAI for $50 million of real-world assets that gen, generates 3% yield. Is this kind of the general structure? So like Maker's not lending to HVB, but it's buying interest generating assets. Is, is this kind of the structure here? Exactly. Couldn't have, couldn't have said it better myself. The, the one thing I'll say is uh, the 3% number, um, it, it, the, the facility really should net out much higher than that. Um, we set it up with a minimum yield um, to ensure that sort of HVB was um, exceeding um, that, that minimum hurdle. Um, but, you know, as we mentioned before, you know, HVB is going to originate these assets at market rate, um, which will be at some spread above the like term U.S. Treasury. So we should expect higher than 3%. But um, CLG, your, your breakdown of, of the way the, the, the facility is structured, the process is exactly right. So we're only swapping die for our piece of the participations. So if the facility is fully used, we'll have 100 million die outstanding against 
100 million of assets, uh, maker assets, and HVB will have another 100 million, the other half of those assets we are participating in. Gotcha. Okay. I, I think the, the, the benefits here from MakerDAO, I think are fairly clear. You can diversify your books, you can generate more revenue in a time when revenue on crypto-based loans is, is driving down, as you mentioned before. But why, why is HVB dealing with MakerDAO? Like, what does HVB get out of this deal? And why are they making this initiative and taking on this, this uh, you could put it, technology risk to push this forward? Great question. Um, why are they taking the technology risk? So I think there's two pieces here. One, um, which you kind of got to understand the constraints that regulators put on these banks. One of the constraints um, that you know, HVB must respect is a maximum exposure to a single borrower. So um, as currently structured, HVB can have no more than $7 million out to any one borrower. This is really constraining because if you think about what HVB is, it's a community bank. Community banks have their edge in understanding their existing customers and growing with those customers. So what that means is if they have a really good customer who they have a commercial real estate loan out to, that's a $7 million loan, right? And that customer is successful. They spin out another business. They buy another rental property. HVB cannot grow with that customer, which you know, fundamentally hurts the value prop of a community bank. So what does HVB end up doing? Well, what they end up doing is they end up originating $14 million of loans with a single customer, but then selling off half of those to their competitors, right? Which for obvious reasons is not ideal. So what this structure basically allows for is it allows for HVB to draw on this sort of flexible pool of liquidity, this $100 million of liquidity, and sell in half the participations and really grow with their customers without the risk that um, you know, the new holder of those loans being maker is going to compete or cannibalize their business. Well, I think that's the first key sort of quantitative advantage. The second is, I think it's a, a matter of kind of, um, of brand really. So HVB, you know, is a community bank. It's not the, you know, the sexiest sector. It's, you know, more sexy than recycling, but less sexy than crypto. Um, what they're able to do here is, you know, they're able to, um, you know, kind of become a savvier, more deeply tech oriented financial institution, which I think is kind of great for their brand. And, you know, if you extend this logic out, you know, HVB maybe, you know, over the next few years, depending on how big this facility gets, you know, how much we kind of innovate on this maker standard, grow a partnership together, you know, you could see a future world where HVB is valued more as a technology company and less like a community bank or a credit union. So I think it's really those two things um, are why, you know, HVB is, is in this. And they've been, you know, a true joy to work with. Um, they're, they're proper frontiersmen. Uh, it's a community bank in theory, but, you know, you go and you visit their offices, you see the way they do business, um, you know, you see their, you know, aggressiveness to, you know, integrating with this new technological paradigm. Um, and they're, they're a really impressive shop. And, you know, I think they see kind of the writing on the wall. They see the fact that things are changing and crypto here is here to stay. Um, and I think they want to associate their brand with, with kind of the frontier. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, my, my thesis, just kind of in general with DeFi, is most end users are not going to, you know, open up MetaMask and interact with an application directly, but rather they're going to continue their existing relationship with their financial service providers and fintech apps 
And then those applications and institutions will be using DeFi in the back end. So with this deal, technically the consumers and the users of HPV are using Maker. Not directly, it's abstracted away via the bank's operations, but they're effectively using Maker, which I think is <laughs> it's incredibly interesting to me. And, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but HPV has about $500 million asset under, under management. So you know, this is not a small deal for them. This is a pretty significant deal that will allow them to significantly grow faster. And it's a, it's a very definitive real world use case of accelerating their business, not speculating on crypto tokens, but just growing their business. Do, do you see more banks being onboarded to Maker in this fashion using the same kind of trust structure you've already created, just expanding horizontally? What, what's kind of the vision here? Yeah. So um, I, I think this deal um, and a, a deal we are finalizing in parallel, um, a, uh, a covered bond deal with Societe Generale, the huge French bank. I think this really opens kind of a new era um, for makers optionality, as well as our legitimacy as a player in, in credit markets. Um, to answer your question directly, I think you know, we're now at the stage where we're just getting flooded with inquiries from really good institutional counterparties. Um, to be honest, um, I, don't, I don't want to, um, and I hope I can convince the community that we don't want to scale horizontally um, across other just purely high reputation commercial counterparties. Um, I'd like for each and every deal to be an improvement in terms of you know, trust minimization and innovation over the last. So look, to the extent that an institution is actually keen to work with us and to iterate on a structure that conforms to the maker standard that I'd like to see you know, us building for this industry, then great, we're all for it. You know, obviously a stronger counterparty with a reputation for expertise is better than one that doesn't have that reputation. But, you know, make no mistake, you know, we're, we're not in the, in the business of just jamming DeFi into TradFi um, and underwriting, you know, a, a $1.5 billion loan to Goldman. You know, if it were structured correctly and Goldman wanted to work with us in a way that we could really build a robust standard with good oracles, trust minimization, everything on chain, ZK proofs, yada, 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 great. Um, but the deal that comes after HVB needs to be better, more robust, um, and more trust minimized than, than the last. So I think that's the cadence we're going to take. So, so it sounds like to me, really what you're advocating for um, is to continue refining the template that other real world assets can use in the future, as opposed to just trying to ram them all, ram them all through with a, in, with a very initial solution. And so like working with partners to actually keep harnessing that template to where it's in such a good state that you can really start to scale out uh, it using that template. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we, we, we want this, like we recognize that, you know, maker is uniquely equipped to accelerate this revolution. I mean, it, it's a duty of sorts, right? Maker has a sovereign balance sheet. What it can say is, you know, we, we know based on, you know, our experience with the renewables revolution that until the right thing and the economic thing are the same, nothing happens. And so Maker can sit in this interesting position, which is we can incentivize with our balance sheet 
the sort of change towards transparency that we want to see in capital markets, right? We can galvanize that revolution. And we're going to do that, right? And I think with the other sort of infrastructure partners building at this intersection, you know, whether it's Centrifuge or Maple or Chainlink or Spectral or anyone else, you know, we can be the piece of that stack that galvanizes change, this maker standard through economic incentives. And I think we plan to do so. Yeah, that's kind of a kind of a, ref a refreshing view for crypto, considering a lot of a lot of projects are just kind of growth, 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 like just gotta gotta expand horizontally, vertically, gotta do everything all at the same time. And it seems like it, what you're kind of pitching here is that Maker has a lot of leverage in, in its position as the you know primary decentralized stablecoin and primary lender in the crypto ecosystem, that you can use your leverage to actually build an ecosystem that's more trust minimized and transparent. And so you're purposely limiting, basically purposely limiting your own growth for the safety of Maker and for the safety of the ecosystem as a whole. So that's it's commendable and it's it's a, it's a unique approach, but I think it's honestly the right approach to take things right and carefully. What I'm not sure if you have any plans in place, but what do you envision as being the next evolution of this structure? Like what what needs to get introduced for this next big deal to seem very viable uh, for the for the maker community? Do you think? Yeah. So so look, I think for the for the for the next deal, um, it will look. I mean, look, we, we don't exactly know uh, what the next deal looks like. There's a lot of stuff in the pipeline. Um, and I think ultimately something that Maker needs to come to consensus around, um, which um, I seek to address in, in a piece I'll, I'll publish shortly is, you know, what, what is the long, what is the North Star for RWAs? What do we want to achieve? What does success look like in 2030? And if we can come to consensus on that, then what does implementation look like next month or the month after that? What does this next deal do? Like, how do we back into implementation? And so I think like ultimately this maker standard, I think has sort of two prongs. Like I call them rebirth and birth. Rebirth is, you know, let's bring existing assets. We call them real world assets, off chain stuff onto the maker standard, right? Let's incentivize the, the, uh, a change in the way they're ledgered, reflected, et cetera, et cetera. The other piece is birth, which is how do we mint for the first time completely novel assets on chain that have credit risk? And I think that's ultimately, um, that's ultimately where I'd like the next deal to come from. So, you know, something like, for example, I'm not going to you know, give any any teasers, but an asset that would fit this bill is hash power backed loans tokenized under Swiss law, right? Where we could hold a token on our balance sheet and that token entitled us to the underlying payment from BTC miners. So I think either way, what the next deal looks like is it takes these innovations that, uh, you know, we've built into HVB, particularly a colleague Christian of mine has built into HVB, and we upgrade them and add new ones if it's sort of a rebirth deal, if it's existing RWAs that live out there in the real world. But on the other side, if it's a birth deal um, and it's sort of, you know, we built a proprietary uh, structure that allows for a completely new asset to live on chain, I think that will also be appealing to the extent that the asset is safe and it fits kind of the risk profile of, of Maker. So I think just the key is, you know, the infrastructure continues to evolve um, and it's an improvement upon the last. I had a question, TJ. How, 
um, you know, I kind of, you know, Maker's kind of pioneered, you know, DAOs kind of, in a, you know, I think I, I may be wrong here, but I believe they're like one of the first DAOs. Um, and I'm just curious, like, what are the benefits, but also the challenges with running, having a DAO structure, but then trying to, you know, put, you know, do these type of very complex deals where, you know, not everyone, a lot of people, it's going to be very hard to understand all the different details. There's going to be a lot of different opinions. You know, have people who have been around a while, you have new people, like what are the challenges, the benefits and the challenges of doing this through a DAO structure? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I feel like you guys are diving right, right at the core of the machine here. Um, so I, I think there are some benefits to, obviously, to decentralized governance. Um, you know, in general, it becomes more difficult to corrupt a system where um, ownership um, and sort of voting is distributed. So to the extent that some external actor, right, had a real world asset and they wanted to jam it through the protocol, um, if every, if, if one party owned all sort of the MKR stake and that party, you know, were bribed, for example, to use a hypothetical, it would be easy to, you know, milk the golden goose, which is maker there. But um, if governance is decentralized, it becomes a little bit more difficult um, to do so, and thus the system is more resilient. Um, I think that's the positive side. Um, I think the negative side, which CO, you, you got to very incisively, is, you know, RWAs are incredibly complex. Um, they require an understanding of macro risk, of micro risk, of the asset class itself, of the asset manager, all of this stuff. And so, you know, to what extent can a decentralized group of token holders, you know, make better decisions with regard to those assets than domain experts have spent their careers doing so? And I think it's sort of, you know, it brings up this interesting idea, which is um, you've got this product that's clearly evolving from something that is crypto native to something that's a little bit more hybrid. Uh, but yet the decision-making apparatus governance um, you know, hasn't really fundamentally been changed to reflect that change to your product. Um, as it currently stands, MKR holders vote on a lot of stuff, right? They vote on macro stuff like budgeting decisions, um, like new core units, which is our, you know, fancy name for new teams. But they also vote for micro stuff, such as onboarding collateral, vault parameters, etc. And you have not seen, at least I haven't seen, maybe you guys can correct me, you know, a structure, a precedent whereby there is a complex domain and each and every decision goes to referendum, you know, where local knowledge experts aren't making decisions on behalf of, you know, the local domain. So I think that's where things get really tricky and something we're working through now, which is, does our decision-making apparatus work for where we're trying to go? And if not, how do we work from first principles to revise it such that it is in fact effective? This is kind of this is kind of related to this topic of governance, but there was a there was a recent controversial vote on the Maker DAO forum around Love One or just introducing a new core unit to oversee the onboarding of collateral. What, what what's kind of a what's your overview on the situation? Was that were you disappointed it failed or did you want it to fail? Well, I'm curious on your perspective generally. 
Yeah, so um, I was I was disappointed it failed. Um, I think it um, it would have brought sort of robustness and, and professionalization to the DAO. Um, the prospective facilitator, who you know would have been you know the the effectively the boss of, the, of that core unit, uh, I'd worked with for a few months. His name is Luca. Um, just a, a fantastic contributor. I have nothing but positive things to say about him. Um, but if you think about what the group was really trying to do, it was basically add a another um, another demonstration of how important structure and the pursuit of RWAs were. And so you ask sort of ask the question, well, like what's not to like if Maker has decided on RWAs as a growth factor and RWAs are complicated and thus like another layer sort of an audit layer, uh, an independent layer, overviewing the process by which RWAs are onboarded, you know, what, what do we not like about this? And so I think the broader, um, the broader takeaway here is what really happened is that vote had nothing to do with the underlying content of the vote itself. People weren't voting on whether love did or did not survive. Uh, it, it was a sort of a proxy war um, for whatever reason, people felt on both sides that this vote was indicative of something much broader um, about kind of the trajectory where the DAO would go. And so, you know, people kind of, you know, marshaled their assets and it became sort of this split for whatever reason between kind of legacy maker, uh, kind of pure ideology, um, crypto native ideology on the other side, um, was sort of those trying to change the protocol, make it less trustless, um, and sort of bring in, you know, big VCs who thought about things more commercially. And whether that was right or wrong, I, I think matters less, but I think that's why people made the, the kind of the decisions they did. Um, love did not end up passing, which I think would have been great for the professionalization of RWAs. Um, but ultimately, these systems, um, you know, to be quite frank, um, they are no different than any human power structure. And when uh, you know, certain interests feel that things are going against them, you know, they will galvanize the resources required to push things in a certain way. So I think it was an interesting experiment um, for Maker and even for, for broader, broader crypto. Um, but most importantly, maybe the takeaway is everyone showed up to vote that day. And so I think people only get excited and they get hot and bothered when they know something meaningful is being built. And I think we hopefully can take that energy and that excitement and parlay it into, into something productive. Yeah, I think I agree with your assessment. It was definitely much more about the proposal itself. It's, I kind of seen it shoehorned of like decentralization versus centralization. I think that's an oversimplification of yeah. what the situation yeah. was, but that's Agreed. unfortunately kind of what the, the grouping was. Um, right. Kind of stepping out of governance and kind of back into real world assets with the HVB deal. I know that that's not the first real world asset deal that MakerDAO has engaged in. Has Maker seen success in previous onboarding of real world assets? What's kind of, what's been the trajectory so far since HVB is really just one dot in this graph? Yeah, so I would say um, HVB is, is the biggest deal 
um, that we, we've done yet. And uh, I think it's kind of the, the very beginning that we hope that our RWAs, you know, are in you know the billions in, in, in short order, obviously done responsibly. I think the, the RWA, um, you know, program really started with, um, with an infrastructure partner uh, called Centrifuge, who we launched with. Um, they built a uh, entire protocol um, that allowed for asset managers to tokenize assets um, and, and make our face effectively lens die into those pools. Um, and we absorb centrifuge tokens that, that represent the underlying assets. And so we did a few turns um, of deals with centrifuge right off the bat. Um, I think the biggest um, is a, um, is a, a facility, a, a pool with a group called New Silver, who originate uh, real estate bridge loans, basically like you know value add renovation loans, mainly in the Northeast. And that, that's now a I think it's a $30 million facility today. Um, and we did a few other sort of small pilots with, with Centrifuge, and we intend to continue to do those. But then I think when you know we, we, we got to sort of the last six months, and now we're now onboarding this $30 million deal with Society General, we're doing the HVB deal. Um, and so there's a lot of deals in the pipeline now, as I have alluded to a few times now. Um, and so there's no sort of shortage of good quality, diverse assets out there. Um, but yeah, that's kind of been the trip so far. How how have you seen like the calls change? Like you get on calls with these people from traditional finance. Like <laughs> I'm curious how the calls have evolved. Yeah. Like <laughs> that's a good question. They've they've transformed completely. You know, at the beginning, um, it was you know me and and, and the team really begging, uh, begging to be heard. And you know, we get on the calls and. The idea is to, you know, convince the asset manager to finance some some assets through Maker. But you know, forty five minutes of an hour call is explaining, you know, Maker from soup to nuts and getting over this hurdle, which is, you know, no, this is we're a legitimate thing. You know, Maker's balance sheet is actually ten billion dollars, and you know they're treating it like it's, you know, a cute, you know, cyber cyberpunk toy. But now, you know, the power dynamic, the the script is very much flipped. I think you know people saw, you know, the collapse of, of Luna, um, and you know that that was a, a pretty oddly good event for Maker. Uh, people saw kind of the collapse of these opaque CFI structures. That was an oddly good event for Maker. Um, and then HVB hit, um, and you know I have, you know, folks and institutions from my previous life, um, you know, calling up and asking how you know they can get in the door. And so I think you know we've we've crossed a, a threshold where um, a new kind of echelon of activity is possible. We've got all of these options. The question is, how do we take all of those opportunities and use the scarce resources we have to choose the right ones? Yeah, it feels like in general, like the zeitgeist has really shifted towards real world assets, towards maker, and just towards real fundamental values. Everything keeps every other kind of Ponzanomic structure in crypto keeps collapsing, then the attention actually gets focused towards where the real value can be generated. And that's fundamentally real world assets. It's, it's nice to, to hear that too, because if you're on crypto Twitter, sometimes there's just a bunch of doom posting, you know, so it's, it's, if you actually though look at the fundamentals of a lot of the stuff, you know, yeah, we, you know, I do think we win an innovation lull, but you know, there's a lot of big things also happening out there. You just, they just get, you know, they're not Ponzanomic, you know, 100,000% APY, but they're like real long-term sustainable things. And the more those pile up, you know, the more legitimacy and, and, and you know, that brings the sentiment back over time. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think you guys may have mentioned this last week or maybe you heard it somewhere else, but like it's easy to forget, you know, <laughs> amidst the price action and just the misery on crypto Twitter, um, the kind of the, the slow but steady improvement in fundamentals that we've seen over the last two years. I mean, I remember two years ago, you know, people, crypto wasn't really talked about. It was still a joke. And now, you know, we have situations where, you know, a $100 billion real estate asset manager is, you know, talking to a maker about financing loans. We have, you know, this constant uptick in active developers and active wallets and the tooling is getting better. And, you know, um, big asset managers are manning, managing USDC reserves. JP Morgan is losing executives to whatever protocol. Like, things have changed, right? We're in a different world. And I think it's important to recognize that. Um, and, you know, these sort of bear markets where the unsustainable stuff falls out, where, you know, it, it gets cold, I, I think are, are largely good. I mean, it hurts for a lot of people, but I think it's positive for the industry as a whole. With things kind of shifting the way they are, I'm, I'm curious, what's your long-term vision of real world assets? And I guess DeFi in general, like 10 years down the line, is the majority of collateral in DeFi going to be real world assets? Is it going to be people interacting with banks who use DeFi as their entire backend, essentially? Like, what's your kind of vision of how things go right in the future for DeFi? Yeah, so I think if we look out a few years, um, you know, this distinction between real world assets, as we're terming them, and, and crypto assets is, is, is hopefully gone. If we're successful, it's gone. Um, I think we we use that distinction because it is a sort of a function of where we're at today and kind of the fact that they're you know the maker standard and and those rails haven't haven't yet um, haven't yet really been built out you know but I think ultimately what what we hope crypto is is just this kind of to your point with the banks being the front end we hope it's just this back end like this plumbing for value and fit for an internet age. And if that is in fact the case, and it's similar to the internet in that way, in other words, it's not a speculative asset class, it's, it's, a, it's a backbone of a digital economy, then everything should really, should really live on chain. Um, and this massive world of value out there, that $650 trillion, you can see it slowly getting pulled from all these proprietary ledgers um, and going to live on on Ethereum or, or you know, on, on IBC or, or wherever else. And I think that is what, what success does look like. I think if we don't attack real world assets, um, then to be frank, you know, kind of capped, kind of failed in a way. Um, your question about the banks being the front end um, that people interact with, I think it, the, the principle is right. In other words, you know, crypto will be abstracted away um, and people will interact with it through these sort of very convenient, friendly portals. I think the bank analogy, um, you know, it's, it's kind of the, you know, when the car came around and we called it a horseless carriage, like it kind of uses like the previous models to, to map things into the future. And, and who knows, maybe I'm wrong and, you know, banks are Know, this fundamental fixture. But what I want to say is they either look much different or kind of that front end is much different. But either way, I agree, which, whichever you guys said that, you know, the average user is not going to be using MetaMask to interact with a protocol where, you know, they're bringing their RWAs. I think that's right. I think it becomes very easy, the entire sort of pipeline, of taking an RWA, ledgering it, you know, um, 
packaging it and piping it on chain uh, and then getting you know credit against that asset it'll ultimately become super 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 easy and we'll have all the infrastructure and i do think all these rwas end up just living on chain and then the distinction between rwa and crypto should should kind of disappear yeah i think you put it well i mean eventually there won't just there won't be decentralized finance centralized finance it's just going to be finance and that's where assets are going to live they're not real world assets they're just going to be assets and the DeFi tokens that exist are not going to be the main story of like how do we build infrastructure to speculate on tokens it's more of these tokens exist to govern these systems and then collect a the revenue from that but the actual focus of the system is finance uh, financing businesses and consumers and actual real value in society so in my mind i'm very aligned with that i don't know if it'll be banks doing this in the future as the front end maybe more fintech operations and probably crypto native front end operations but it'll it'll modularize between these two different layers um uh, crypto oracle do you have any any last questions for for tj here no i don't have any last questions i just what you guys were just talking about yeah i think DeFi will just be uh, kind of like how fintech is like fintech is a i mean i think it's gonna be big, much bigger than fintech but it's like part of a holistic financial system it's not like one or the other there's like a holistic financial system and DeFi is this large you know portion like infrastructure within a larger that you can utilize in a lot of different things um i've lost my train of thought no worries i was just gonna say i think DeFi in general is kind of a poor term it kind of shoehorns our industry into a specific model of like we're trying to achieve ultimate trustlessness and decentralization but it's it's really a spectrum like people like to come in with the gotchas and goes oh, oh there's the centralized part it's not DeFi, therefore holding worthless but like that's it's, it's an oversimplification of what we're actually trying to build here. And that it's really, uh, I don't know, in my mind, if we build something that's really trustless and decentralized, but it like doesn't really do anything, it's more of an experiment. It's, it's interesting, but it doesn't actually generate value. And we kind of have to compromise on some values to generate real value for society. So in my mind, there's always going to be a compromise. It's not going to be 100% pure DeFi, but I think that's okay if we actually want to generate some real value here in my mind. Plus... Plus, you know, you have this alternative now. Like, it's not like if you want to go this more fully trustless model, like you can build it or it already exists. So it's not like there's only one system. And if you're not in this system, you know, there is no other system. So even worst case, you have this alternative system that exists. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think just just to add to that, to, to your point about, you know, people like to get very black and white about, you know, it's either fully trustless, completely censorship resistant, or we don't want it, right? Like that's kind of a, 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 not really a battle, but it was a battle that was playing out in, in Maker, this idea of kind of violating our founding principles around pure trustless collateral. But I think you're right, like, you know, just because right off the bat, when we're ingesting RWAs into this system, they're not as trustless. They don't benefit from the same um, properties as crypto collateral. Like, doesn't mean that we don't integrate them at all. What it means is you take that entire world of value, which dwarfs your corner of the world, and you say, how do we inject like little improvements and trust minimizing vectors into this 
such that we can have all of this value living living on our rails. I think that's kind of the key compromise. If you want to make a dent and make an impact in the world, which I, I think ostensibly is what many crypto folks say we want to do. If we really want to do that, then you, you got to compromise because the existing world is built a very specific way, has all these path dependencies. And so you kind of got to deal with that and work around that. I think if you want to, if you want to make a lasting impact, which I hope we all do. Yeah, the future, it's very exciting. There's plenty of risks and opportunities on the path forward. I think that this world assets are inevitably the shift forward. And I think that, I think this, this conversation, I hopefully provides a lot of context to people that uh, real work is actually being done on real world assets, that this is very likely the path forward. It's going to take a little while to get this right, just the initial stages. But uh, I, I'm really glad you joined us in this conversation. Uh, do, do you have any any last thoughts to, to give the listeners here, TJ? Yeah, I would, I would just say, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, um, you know, what kind of success looks like um, for for Maker and, and for RWAs. I think it's just sort of important to recognize um, from 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 my seat that you know die <laughs> it's trying to be a money and if you're trying to be a money um, you you kind of need to achieve a network effect and it's very difficult to achieve a network effect if you know you don't have a number of different avenues to export um, this crypto native money. So if you're just exporting in, in kind of crypto, crypto in the narrow halls of crypto, and I can't go into the real world, that's all of this potential network effect and users and, and value that kind of you're leaving stranded in the real world. Um, and in fact, contrary to this idea that real world assets are, you know, a, a departure, I guess, from the founding principles of crypto and of maker, you know, if you actually think about it, um, we could potentially, by making these systems more open and more transparent, invite in kind of the very businesses that are excluded from traditional credit markets. And so instead of a divergence, you know, Maker was supposed to mint die and get it, get synthetic dollars to any user on earth. Now you're taking that same financial inclusion and you're potentially applying it to the entire world of, of commerce and industry. So I just, I guess I just encourage people to kind of be open about what real world assets are. They're, they're not this evil thing that come with TradFi suits that are trying to overrun your world. Um, it's in fact an, an asset class that's much bigger and could, and could really sort of enhance and diversify uh, the world of DeFi. Yeah, I think you put it very well, very well. I think one thing I would recommend the listeners to do, I'm, I'm going to put in the description the link to the HVB deal. It's kind of it's, it's a little in depth, but I think giving a look at the summary and the overview of the risks and not the opportunities will kind of put things into perspective of how this shift is already happening. So uh, I want to thank thank you again, TJ, for coming onto this podcast and discussing this topic with us. And I want to just give a heads up to the viewer that this is likely the path forward and it's always worth having a discussion and I'm interested in people's thoughts. So thanks for listening. Thanks guys for having me. Absolutely.